Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to elders past and present. This episode is about the entertainment industry's ableist exploitation of short-statured people in the early 20th century. When necessary in quoting historic newspapers, I've substituted the phrase the M-word for a highly offensive term. Other newspaper descriptions may offend. Listener discretion is advised. It's Thursday the 21st of January 1915 and Australia has answered the British Empire's call to fight the Central Powers, that is Germany, Turkey, Bulgaria and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Gallipoli is still three months away, but at the start of this month the distant war has been felt at home with a terrorist attack on Australian soil. On New Year's Day at Broken Hill, two foreigners showed their support for the enemy by flying a homemade Ottoman Empire flag as they shot up a crowded picnic train. In the ambush and ensuing battle with police, soldiers and civilians, six people were killed, including the two shooters, and seven others were wounded. The next day, the Melbourne Age's headline read, Fanatical Outrage at Broken Hill. While the shooters were actually likely from Afghanistan, India or Pakistan, they were widely reported as being from Turkey. Billy Hughes, Federal Attorney General, told the press, quote, I see that it is alleged that the outrage was committed by Turks. If that is so, it seems to show, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the great necessity for a very rigid supervision of all alien enemy subjects. Now, less than three weeks later, in a residence in East Melbourne, Concerned Australian citizen Frederick Hooper-Jones is about to do his bit to ensure the very rigid supervision 
of an alien enemy subject. Fred is 35, the older brother of a famous musician. He's a dapper chap who's married with two young children. And these days, he earns a crust as a jobbing showman who tours venues around country Victoria. Novelty acts, tents in town halls, tickets for sixpence, that sort of stuff. It's in this capacity that Fred sits down to write a letter to the commander of Victoria Barracks in Melbourne. He needs to warn military authorities about the man who's his star attraction. This performer is a Turk and he plans to slip away from Australia by boat and to take hundreds of pounds in cash with him. Fred writes, quote, I considered it my duty to report to you. I consider that this money be made to stop in the state. Would you make immediate inquiries? Fred explains that he and this man live at the same address, 539 Victoria Parade, East Melbourne. Time, Fred says, is of the essence. Military intelligence must get this man before he gets away. Fred writes, Advise you calling before Saturday. A good time to call is before 10am or between 6 and 8pm. Despite what Fred writes, his concerns aren't any more patriotic than they are altruistic. The so-called Turk in question is Fred's cash cow, and he wants him under control. The military placing restrictions on the man's freedom and finances might just be a means to that end. What makes this secret denunciation more intriguing is that Fred's betraying a man who's become a beloved figure in Australia. There's a very good chance that the commander of Victoria Barracks not only knows who Fred's writing about, but that he's paid to see him and might have even met him. Handsome, erudite and very charming, Hayati Hasid stands 30 inches tall and weighs 34 pounds. A genuine international celebrity, this small man performer has been living and working in Australia the past three years. In that time, maybe as many as one million people, that is, one in five of the entire population, has made his acquaintance. Men joke with him, women swoon over him, and awestruck children shake hands with him as they stand eye to eye. Australians have bought millions of bits of merchandise, postcards, photos, booklets, and even a special newspaper that feature Hayati and his short-statured colleagues. Now Hayati's boss, Fred Jones, wants to reduce his small man performer to persona non grata. Fred wants the military to control him as a Turkish enemy alien. But that's not how Australians think of Hayati Hasid. They know him and they love him as the mayor of Tiny Town. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode The Mayor of Tiny Town versus Australia's Shiftiest Showman. Parts 2, 3 and 4 will go on general release over the next week and a half, but as an Apple subscriber or Patreon supporter, you can hear them right now. You'll also get access to a whole lot of exclusive bonus episodes, including The Wreck of the Errol, about a horrific 1909 shipwreck near Lord Howe Island. As a supporter or subscriber, you're helping me to make Forgotten Australia because I use contributions to access research materials. In fact, this episode arose from something I read in a second-hand copy of Alan Finch's 1965 book Pens and M's Stories of Australian Newspapers, which I was able to buy thanks to supporter and subscriber generosity. 
In this slender volume about some of our lesser-known publications, Mr Finch gives a couple of paragraphs to Australia's smallest newspaper. Not smallest in terms of circulation, because that was actually pretty large. Smallest in terms of size. Editions of this newspaper could pretty much fit in the palm of your hand. The title? The Tiny Town Times. This newspaper was published by the troupe of little people who toured Australia in 1911 and 1912 under the name Tiny Town. In the book Pens and M's, Mr Finch is actually fairly disparaging about this group of small people performers. He says that their act just wasn't that interesting. Of course, I wanted to know more. The State Library of New South Wales catalogue listed one copy of the Tiny Town Times still in their collection. So off I went to the city. But upon requesting the newspaper, the librarian regretted to say it was missing. Seems it got lost or was stolen sometime in the past century. While that was disappointing, what was very encouraging was to find out that Tiny Town and its mayor, Hayati Hasid, were the subject of hundreds and hundreds of mainstream newspaper articles back in the day. A number of these even contained excerpts and summaries of material that had appeared in the Tiny Town Times. Down the rabbit hole, I tumbled. Hayati Hasid's story was widely publicised in Europe, England, the United States, Australia and New Zealand between 1907 and 1918. Of course, newspaper reports about him and about Tiny Town were often coloured by the ballyhoo of showmen. That means a little of what you're going to hear can be taken with a grain of salt. Yet there's plenty I could confirm in the common and continuous threads in coverage from state to state and country to country. Additionally, Hayati's story was told under oath in Victorian courtrooms and also in a 26-page military intelligence file held at the National Archives of Australia. I had this record digitised using funds contributed by Apple subscribers and Patreon supporters. So, thanks to everyone who's helping out. That includes recent Patreon supporters Amanda Toe Scott, Jenny Duke, Ray Trelaw and Alexi Polden. If you're one of the kind people who subscribe via Apple and you'd like a shout-out, just hit me up at ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. Before we hear about Hayati Hasid, aka the Mayor of Tiny Town, aka the Turkish Tom Thumb, we need to know a little about the original little person superstar who was the first of his name. This was the American dwarf who became famous as General Tom Thumb. Tom's real name was Charles Sherwood Stratton and he was born in 1838 in the United States. From 1843, aged five and less than two feet tall, Tom was adopted, promoted and exploited by P.T. Barnum. The so-called greatest showman taught the tiny boy to sing, dance, mime and do impersonations of famous people. P.T. Barnum gave him the name General Tom Thumb and toured him in America before taking him to England and to Europe. Little Charles twice performed for Queen Victoria. He grew to stand about 30 inches tall and in 1863 he married Lavinia Warren who stood 2 foot 8. The wedding was one of the most celebrated events in 19th century New York history. There were 10,000 guests and Barnum flogged expensive tickets to thousands more people who wanted to be in on the reception. Charles and Lavinia were among the most famous people in the world. They even toured Australia in 1870. 
One of the results of Charles's stage charm and talents as General Tom Thumb, and the fame and fortune he enjoyed under P.T. Barnum, was that Little People Entertainments, previously disdained as being in poor taste, became legitimate and enormously popular around the world. Charles continued to perform until he died at the age of 45 in 1883. 20,000 people turned out to his funeral. Two years later, his widow Lavinia married Count Primo Magri, who stood two foot ten. That made her a countess, and two decades later, she'd be in Paris as part of an attraction that was called Tiny Town. That brings us to the man who'd be promoted as the Turkish Tom Thumb. Hayati Hasid was born to full-size parents in January 1852 in Thessalonica in what was then Turkey. By his own account, he was Jewish and had Spanish ancestry. Hayati's father was reportedly a Turkish soldier. His mother had her hands full because Hayati had 11 full-size siblings. In an echo of the general Tom Thumb legend, Hayati was said to have stopped growing at the age of four. Like his predecessor, he was perfectly proportioned, just tiny. Because Hayati was so small, his parents kept him in school until he was 20 years old. That meant he got a thorough education, yet there weren't many opportunities for little people. Throughout history though, they had been prized by royalty, and so Hayati became a member of the Sultan of Turkey's harem at Yildiz. This Sultan, Abdul Hamid II, is remembered as Abdul the Damned. There are a lot of reasons for this. Historically, it's because his reign saw Turkey falter and fracture as revolutionary forces rose against him. After he was ousted, there'd never be a sultan so powerful in the short time they had left before Turkey became a republic. Personally and politically, Abdul the Dam's nickname seemed fitting because the paranoia he held about being assassinated made him erratic, violent and brutal. Stories of this are legion. It said he worried his clothes would be poisoned, so he got court jesters to put them on first. His head was protected by a steel-lined fez. The Sultan carried a gun everywhere, and one time shot dead a gardener who stood up suddenly to greet him. Another story had the Sultan doing the very same thing to one of his many daughters. Along those lines, fearful of being blown up by a bomb when in his coach, he'd be sure to sit with another of his daughters on his knee, visible to all as a human shield. Externally, his brutality and paranoia led him in the mid-1890s to order the massacre of 300,000 Armenians and 25,000 Assyrians. These genocidal mass murders of men, women and children earned him another nickname, the Red Sultan. So this was Hayati Hasid's boss. Fortunately, Yildiz was a vast palace complex that had been built in 1880. It was home to about 350 ladies and their attendants, along with the Sultan's numerous children, hundreds more servants, kitchen staff, assistants, stablemen, all protected by 1,500 or so soldiers. Wives, concubines, eunuchs, dwarves and other minions lived in quarters that were like prison cells or dormitories. One later report would say that Hayati, in all his time there, never actually met the Sultan. If that was the case, he was lucky. Nevertheless, being in the harem meant that Hayati was enmeshed in a system characterised by political scheming, arbitrary violence and sexual slavery. 
How much say he had in the matter of his service to this mad regime isn't known. Likely, Hayati didn't have any choice at all. He served in the role of jester and entertainer at Yildiz for a decade to a decade and a half. After that, he was made a member of the suite of the Grand Vizier. By the end of the 19th century, this official's role had become like the Prime Minister to the Sultan. Given the chronology, it's likely Hayati served Halil Rafit Pasha, who was Grand Vizier from 1895 to 1901 when he died in office. Hayati would say upon this death, he was left an allowance of 1,500 francs a year. The catch was, to be eligible for this pension, Hayati had to remain in Turkey. The Ottoman Empire had already long been regarded as the sick man of Europe, and it was getting sicker every day under the rule of Abdul the Damned. Hayati would say he had a love-hate relationship with his homeland. It was a wonderful country in every respect, except for him to live in. He would tell a reporter that one of his brothers had been, quote, poisoned under typically oriental circumstances. Exactly what that meant isn't clear. Another article said his father had been murdered by brigands. Forgoing the pension, Hayati opted to leave. In the early 1900s, he worked in Europe and in Asia. All his years under the Sultan had given him much time to perfect his routines. Meanwhile, his education and his travels meant he could speak seven languages – French, Spanish, Italian, Turkish, Dutch, Arabic and Greek. One of the stories went that Hayati's library comprised 15 dictionaries and every night you'd find him poring over these. Hayati, as the man of his family, sent remittances to Turkey to support his unmarried sisters and his widowed sister-in-law and her children. Hayati reportedly performed for various royals in Europe, some stories claiming his fans included Queen Victoria and King Edward. A 1906 French photo postcard shows him with an aristocratic air as he perches on a tiny lounge. Hayati wears a three-piece suit and affairs, holds a walking stick across his knees with his shoes a few inches off the floor. The caption says he's 55 years old, stands 75 centimetres and weighs 17 kilograms. In 1907, Hayati was working at the Folies Berger in Paris when he was discovered by an English showman named Lloyd Forsyth. Under contract to this new manager, Hayati was by November that year billed as the Turkish Tom Thumb when he appeared at the Metropolitan Hall in London. As part of a variety performance, he did three costume changes, cracked jokes, performed magic tricks, sang songs in French and did recitations in English. Hayati Hasid was a smash hit. He was immediately re-engaged at double his salary for a further month and a half. A daily news reporter found the newly minted star at the South London Music Hall. There he was, standing on a table in his dressing room, undergoing coaching from Lloyd Forsyth, the reporter making it sound like Hayati was being phonetically instructed in English language routines. With a twinkle in his eyes, he spoke of his life in Turkey. Hayati did so in French, saying he hoped to have mastered English by next week. Joking, he said, if a man who knows two languages is worth two men, then I shall be worth 16 all put together. Isn't that good arithmetic? The ERA newspaper told readers, quote, It speaks well for the 
M-Word's popularity that hundreds have been waiting at the stage door of the South London every evening this week to see him. He is an especial pet with the ladies, and on Wednesday last was the recipient of an offer of marriage by post. On New Year's Day, the Daily Mirror celebrated pantomime season with a special souvenir edition. One photographic page showed a premiere attraction called Mammoth Fun City, which was at the Olympia. Here, under one big canvas roof, visitors could marvel at African natives living in a recreated village, thrill to the antics of a lady aerialist, and munch greasy carny food as they watch two chaps competing in a starvation competition. But the smallest and biggest attractions were Hayati Hasid and his opposite number, Henry Cott. Of course, the Daily Mirror had a photo of them side by side, the caption reading, An amusing contrast may be seen in the Turkish Tom Thumb and the French Giant. The former is only 30 inches in height, while the latter is 8 foot 7 inches. After making his mark at Mammoth Fun City, Hayati was in demand in vaudeville in London and in the provinces. Immaculate in a frock coat and silk hat, his show began with him being taken to the stalls so everyone could get a close-up look and have a chat. As the Eastbourne Chronicle reported in March 1908, quote, We blush to publish, it is even rumoured that he has been bold enough to steal a kiss from some of the fair sex. Hayati's stage performance comprised jokes, songs, tricks and more chat. The Folkestone Express, Sandgate, Shorncliffe and Hythe Advertiser in May reported, quote, He styles himself the continental comedian and cuts a quaint figure as he struts up and down the stage. Back in London, the Olympia wasn't only a fairground funland. During the winter season, it was also the number one roller skating venue in the world, with a surface of 15,000 square feet. Roller skating was then such a craze the opening of a new rink in Aberdeen had drawn a crowd of 10,000 people. Mainstream newspapers even had dedicated columns about the rinking industry. In autumn 1909, Olympia's management had a bold plan to ensure they stayed number one in the upcoming season. The Turkish Tom Thumb had been a hit for them previously. What was better than one little person? Why, a whole community of them. Over in Paris, there was a troop of short-statured folk who were then displayed in a scaled-down village called Tiny Town. Why not recreate this at the Olympia? The Olympia's management contracted the Parisian performers and set about building a tiny town in an annex of their sprawling roller rink. Hayati Hasid, who'd continued touring England, agreed to appear in this miniature metropolis over the winter season. The Countess Marguerite, wife of the late General Tom Thumb, much beloved in London and lately playing in Paris, would be another draw card at the Olympia. Tiny Town was built in October and November. It had everything you'd find in a typical village. Houses, shops, police and fire station, municipal buildings, church, theatre and circus where the resident entertainers would put on shows children would be able to tour the town in tiny pony-drawn carriages, including one that had been given to General Tom Thumb by Queen Victoria. As the American Register newspaper noted, quote, Tiny towns should draw every child in London during the Christmas holidays. 
The arrival of Tiny Towns ponies from Paris resulted in what was surely the cutest news story of 1909. On the 5th of November, 45 of these little horses were marched through the city to the Olympia. The Daily News reported, quote, They were the dearest little ponies imaginable. None of them was much more than three feet high, and two were only 24 inches. These two were the centre of attention, which grew so embarrassing that their guardians called a taxi cab and put the ponies in it. On Friday the 19th of November, Hayati and half a dozen other little people who'd be tiny townsfolk had a reception at a hotel in Piccadilly. Hayati reportedly stood on a table and puffed a cigar nearly as big as his arm. A tiny townsperson told a daily news reporter, quote, It is a pity you are so big. You'll never be able to feel as jolly as we do. This was an enduring trope about such troops, that little people were always cheerful. Yet it contradicted another enduring publicity angle, that little people were just the same as their full-size brethren. The 40-strong European troop had a rough channel crossing and then got a train to London. The Evening News reported on the 1st of December, quote, A swarm of Lilliputians who might have stepped straight from the pages of Gulliver descended on London today. All the little people piled into tiny vehicles pulled by the ponies for a procession through the city. Out front was the state carriage, that was, the carriage given to General Tom Thumb by Queen Victoria. Then there were scaled down hackney cabs, an omnibus and a fire engine. The troupe even had its own little motor car. Music Hall and Theatre Review reported, quote, In Victoria Street, Trafalgar Square, Leicester Square, Piccadilly and all the roads to the Olympia were crowds of people who watched the most remarkable procession seen in London. Hayati was promoted as one of the biggest stars of Tiny Town. Publicity said his years in the harem had given him a, quote, extravagant taste for garments of many colours with plenty of gold and silver on them. Visitors to the Olympia could get an eyeful of this because he'd be attired, quote, in the gorgeous robes of a Grand Vizier. Tiny Town opened its doors when the Olympia season began on Saturday the 4th of December. The Daily News said the animated and amiable inhabitants were a delight as they mingled with guests and spoke of everything under the sun. Quote, they had, they confessed, no prejudices, for they came from almost every corner of the earth. One heard every language spoken, French, German, Russian, Italian, Hungarian, and even Hindustan. Tiny Town was weird, and it was wonderful. Quote, The spectacle was one of the most bizarre imaginable. It was as if one saw a segment of the globe through the wrong end of a telescope. Everyone and everything in this microcosmic community looked absurdly, fantastically small. There was a miniature police station, occupied by gendarmes whose size did not reach 40 inches, a toy-like fire engine drawn by Shetland ponies and driven by tiny firemen in blue uniforms and shining brass helmets. The paper concluded, Life is, indeed, very brilliant and attractive in Tiny Town, and it is well worth a visit. Tiny Town went gangbusters. On Boxing Day, the biggest entertainment day of the year, the skating rink got 16,000 people in, and Tiny Town beat it with 20,000 visitors. Using the advertised prices as a guide and adjusting for inflation, tickets and admission would have generated the equivalent of about £150,000 just that day. Add in refreshments, games and souvenirs, and it well might have been double that. 
thing was, an Australian had just missed out on getting a piece of that sweet box office action. Yet, this man wasn't going to give up on his dream of bringing Tiny Town down under. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. How did Australia's most famous anti-hero end up being hanged by a miserable chicken thief? That was the question I set out to answer when I researched and wrote my new book, Hanging Ned Kelly. A deep dive into the darkest corners of colonial Australia, Hanging Ned Kelly is a beautiful hardback published by a firm press. If you enjoy Forgotten Australia, I'm pretty sure you're going to love it. And it'll make a great Christmas gift for any loved one who's into true crime and Australian history but doesn't get into podcasts. You can get Hanging Ned Kelly wherever books are sold. Frank Beaumont Smith is best remembered today as a pioneering Australian silent movie producer. From 1917, he had a huge success with a comedy series called The Hayseeds. Then, in 1918, he caused a sensation with the magnificently titled, sense-abating, sex-and-sin melodrama, Satan in Sydney. In 1920, Beaumont produced the first adaptation of Banjo Patterson's The Man from Snowy River. And the following year, he did the same by bringing Henry Lawson's stories to the screen in While the Billy Boils. But this episode is about what Beaumont Smith did before he started cranking his film camera. According to records at Ancestry.com.au, he was born in Hallett in South Australia in 1885, and from an early age, Beaumont was a talented writer. At just 19, he launched his own short-lived newspaper in Victor Harbour. In 1906, Beaumont helped poet C.J. Dennis launch the magazine Gadfly in Adelaide. The following year, Beaumont was in Sydney, and there he worked for the Bulletin as a writer and as an advertising man. But by the end of the decade, he'd turned to showbiz, working as private secretary to leading theatrical producer William Anderson. In 1909, Beaumont went to England and to Europe, hoping to contract some big names for his boss. Beaumont tried to lure H.G. Wells to Australia, but the great writer told him to get lost. Australian suffragette Muriel Matters was more receptive and agreed to a lecture tour of her homeland. Yet Beaumont wasn't only going highbrow. He also engaged a Hungarian man called Sacco Homan, who was one of those fasting artists. Poor old starving Sacco would sit in a glass enclosure for weeks on end, supposedly eating nothing and existing only on soda water and cigarettes. Muriel Matters and Sacco Homan were good gets, but the act Beaumont had most wanted to bring back to Australia was Tiny Town. He'd seen the French version while in Paris and tried to contract the troupe, but Beaumont was too late. They'd already been booked for London and then the United States. That's how Tiny Town would roll and Beaumont would have to bide his time. After their smashed London season, Hayati and his Tiny Town colleagues set sail across the Atlantic. They had a horrible experience trying to get into the United States to fulfil their first engagement at New York's huge Hippodrome. As the Cincinnati Post reported, quote, They are so small that the US immigration officials declared they were deformed and wanted to exclude them from the country. 
Hayati and the troop were tossed into Ellis Island as, quote, undesirable immigrants on account of their size. They were crammed into a cell without furniture and had to pay for their inedible food. It wasn't like they were poor travellers who'd be a potential burden on the system. This was out-and-out discrimination. Hayati would bitterly recall, quote, In light of the fact that I had a big engagement with one of the biggest amusement organisations in the world, that I travelled with a valet, who was not sent to Ellis Island, by the way, that I had a bank balance, 45 suits of clothes, 60 pairs of shoes, each one specially made and cost me a pretty penny, and that I was booked at one of the biggest hotels in New York, I think that the treatment I got from the United States government was not only miserably unjust, but absurd. Hayati called this discrimination a barbarous blot on what claims to be a highly civilised country. Hayati and the tiny town troop were only allowed into the country after the Hippodrome's management put down a $60,000 deposit as guarantee that the performers would leave the US once the season was done. This extortion demand met, the show could go on. Tiny Town did good business in New York and then moved to Cincinnati, where they were one of the attractions at Exposition City, which was opened by President Taft. At this time, the press reported a little person named Prince Ludwig was acting as Tiny Town's mayor. It was around this time that Hayati Hasid challenged in one of the regular municipal elections in which visitors to Tiny Town could vote. He triumphed and took office. The Sydney Sun would later say that it had actually been President Taft himself who declared Hayati was the, quote, multum in parvo of municipal politics, a little man in a big way. Other reports would claim that the Turkish Tom Thumb had also met with President Teddy Roosevelt during his American visit. On the other side of the world, in Australia, showman Beaumont Smith wasn't giving up on his tiny town dreams. Having just gotten married in March 1911, he and his wife took a business honeymoon trip to England to look for theatrical novelties. This time though, Beaumont was in business for himself, having the previous month set up a company called Australian Entertainment's Proprietary Limited. He was the managing director and he raised £2,500 via 25 £100 shares. By May 1911, he was on the continent with high hopes of securing Tiny Town. But again, Beaumont's timing seemed to have been terrible. The little people had just returned from America and had already dispersed to their homes. Beaumont was able to negotiate a deal with André Zaynard, circus manager who had 10 performers under contract. But to secure many of Tiny Town's stars, Beaumont would have to hit the rails, and over the next month he'd travel some 5,400 miles by train. He recalled, quote, chasing them, visiting France, Germany, Austria, Italy, Russia, Switzerland, Holland and Belgium. His efforts were to pay off, and Beaumont would claim he contracted 40 performers. In reality, though, less than half that number would come to Australia and to New Zealand. Those who did were to be paid for a 26-week tour. But Hayati Hasid was to have a longer engagement. That was because he was to be Beaumont's advance man for Tiny Town. Beaumont and Hayati reached Perth on the steamer Omrah on the morning of the 25th of July 1911. A big ship coming into an Australian port was then a magnet for journalists who'd look to interview whoever was newsworthy. Beaumont, reasonably well known, supposedly said to a daily newsman, come and see a Turk. The journalist was trying for comedy when he wrote that he'd responded to this entreaty without much enthusiasm. 
To his mind, a Turk was a, quote, huge swarthy creature, dressed in a harem skirt, with a long scimitar clutched in his teeth and a murderous-looking razor on either ear. Nevertheless, this glib xenophobe traipsed aboard to a second-class cabin. Beaumont said, There he is. The reporter supposedly said, Where? There, right under your feet. The journalist said he was amazed to see a miniature man on a bunk. Beaumont continued with a proud showman's flourish. Allow me to introduce you to the mayor of Tiny Town. The journalist dutifully recorded Hayati's height, weight and his background with the Sultan. Hayati, he said, could speak eight languages now, having added English. He'd supposedly mastered the language so well he didn't even have an accent. While most Australian press coverage would be pretty respectful, this would-be comedian came off as snarky, describing Hayati, quote, His features are regular, excepting that his ears are rather too large in proportion to his height. He has quite a lot of dignity, and he can dodge the fearful concussion of a floating mosquito with all the agility of a ballet dancer. It's nice to be able to report that this sort of insulting attitude was the exception rather than the rule. Beaumont told this daily newsman what he had in store for Australia when the rest of the troop arrived in October. Quote, Wait till you see my strongman, a muscular mite of 30 inches high who bears two full-grown men on his chest and lifts astonishingly heavy weights. Then there are wire walkers, jockeys, clowns, acrobats, wrestlers, singers, dancers, lightning sketch artists, everything. Beaumont explained that he was importing some of the tiny ponies and carriages that had proved a hit overseas. But other than that, Tiny Town's buildings would be built from scratch by Australian craftsmen, based, of course, on the designs of those English and European villagers. Tiny Town would throw open its doors first in Adelaide in October. Then would come a long season in Melbourne around Christmas, and it'd be Sydney's turn after that. While Hayati was the mayor of Tiny Town now, he'd face regular elections as he had overseas. Campaign promises and ongoing vote tallies would all be reported in one-time editor and publisher Beaumont Smith's brainchild, the newspaper The Tiny Town Times. Measuring 5 inches wide by 10 inches tall, this weekly was to be the world's smallest newspaper. Its 16 pages were to be edited by Hayati, which, given there was to be a lot of election coverage, seemed a clear conflict of interest. But never mind. With the rest of the Little People performers not due to arrive for a couple of months, Hayati made the most of his time by making appearances, making a bit of money and making people aware that Tiny Town was coming. In Brisbane on the 15th of August 1911, he was promoted as General Turkish Tom Thumb in an appearance in Queen Street. An ad in the Courier proclaimed he was a quote, small man with a big brain, 30 inches of Turkish delight, perfectly developed and absolutely not a freak. The general, this ad said, was quote, highly interesting, very entertaining and will converse fluently with you in eight different languages. He is very fond of the ladies. Do not miss this opportunity of seeing the smallest man in the world. Admission was sixpence, children half price. Hayati went to Melbourne, talking to the press there, with them reporting he is, quote, said to be smaller than the original Tom, who visited this country with his wife in the dim past. Dozens of articles and press releases were printed in hundreds of newspapers all over Australia. Then, on the 14th of October, the press excitedly reported on the arrival of the little people. Hayati welcomed them at Adelaide's Outer Harbour when they arrived on the steamship Zlaten. They'd sailed from Genoa a month earlier, 
farewelled by the Countess Magree, who, sadly, now 70, felt that she was too old to make this trip. But there were plenty of other performers to pique the interest of the pressmen and the public. There was Miss Alonka, 24, a circus rider and comedian. Miss Andre, 34, was a wire walker and dancer, while 27-year-old Mr. Fred was a skilled juggler. The Adelaide Chronicle reported of the new arrivals, quote, They are all foreigners, but they can converse in English freely, and they enjoy conversation and joking as much as ordinary people do. The ladies are particularly bright little creatures, charming in their manners and winning in their ways, in addition to which they have the advantage of being exceedingly attractive in appearance. Amid all the charm and colour though, there was a sombre note reported by the Sydney Mail. It said that Hayati's father had been a soldier in the Turkish army and quote, the son, who is now 56, is a great patriot and takes a keen interest in the present difficulty with Italy. This difficulty was the war between Italy and Turkey, which had just broken out. Tiny Town was due to open at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday the 21st of October 1911 at the Adelaide Exhibition Building, the largest venue in the city. But there was a hiccup because some recently arrived circus equipment hadn't yet been landed from a ship in the outer harbour. Beaumont decided to cancel the first performance rather than offer an incomplete show. This disappointed the 1,000 people who'd turned up. But Beaumont assured anyone who'd pre-purchased tickets they'd get full refunds or admission to the show that evening. Once the gear found its way to the performers, Tiny Town was good to go. And that evening, two to two and a half thousand people turned out to see the show. First, visitors spent an hour with the 13 members of the troupe in the village, chatting and joking. Then came the vaudeville part of the show, with hundreds in the audience having to stand. As a band played, the little people marched up onto the stage, each of them introduced individually by her Arthur Huell, a 24-year-old who'd soon be one of the better-known personalities of Tiny Town. Everyone was beautifully costumed and the props and backdrops were just so. Miss Alonka was first to perform, propelling herself on a revolving globe, going up planks and over a seesaw. Then came Hayati, singing a funny song in French, bringing the house down with his strutting comic style and wicked winks. There were gasps aplenty as Mr. Fred juggled flaming torches. Strongman Mr. Alfonso tossed around 30 and 50 pound weights like toys, and then indeed he did support the weight of two full-grown men who were six times heavier than he was. Miss Hansi sang a song called How Would You Like to Spoon With Me? and this greatly amused everyone. The whole troupe did a Hungarian dance and after intermission began the circus component. There was a sporting jockey bit, some clowning and contortionism, pony tricks, every bit as impressive as any big people equestrian show, high wire walking, more songs and an Irish jig before and all in Terralean dance. Tiny Town was a smash. Ticket prices ranged from one to three shillings, so the box office for that one show would have been about £250. You could bet your last penny that refreshments and merchandising were double that. One of the most popular souvenirs was the debut issue of the Tiny Town Times, and excerpts made their way into mainstream full-size newspapers. In that first edition, readers got a heartwarming tale. The article began, quote, Tiny Town is not without its romantic side, 
Four years ago, Mr. Zaynard, who is the guardian of our miniature men and women, was startled by one of the tiny men asking permission to marry Miss Alonka, one of the prettiest ladies of the party. This romantic chap was none other than her Arthur Huell. The piece explained that as both he and Miss Alonka were underage, Mr. Zaynard had advised them to take it slow. This wise guardian had said if they still felt the same way about each other when they were 24, he wouldn't stand in the way of a wedding. Miss Alonka, Blaschek and her Arthur Huell had both turned 24 on the way to Australia. And they were still head over heels in love, so their wedding was going to happen at the end of the Australian tour. It sounded like hoopla. Was it? We will find out. In the Tiny Town Times, the little people also gave their impressions of Australia. Miss Alonka said, quote, It will be a beautiful country to live in when we are married. I wish for a little minister, one who is not too far up in the air, so we can hear him. Miss Isabel revealed that the North Terrace home that the troop inhabited was beautiful, though she was a bit frightened by local rambunctious boys. Miss Paola said she was happy the ponies had finally arrived. Mr Yonker wished his wife and kids were with him, and Miss Anita thought it was far quieter in Adelaide than in Philadelphia and New York. The Tiny Town Times had everything of interest about the little folk, including a ladies page about fashions and social events. You could buy a copy direct from Hayati and then take it to the village's GPO. There, you could mail the newspaper, along with souvenir photos and postcards, and have them arrive at their destinations bearing the Tiny Town postmark. These transactions were handled by postmaster Hans Pfeiffer. A later article about this man in the Adelaide Advertiser offered incidental insight into the lot of the little people. Hans, it said, was a German university graduate who'd passed some of the highest commercial examinations. Quote, He is exactly three feet two inches in height, and this has proved a drawback in business. He finds the show life, however, more congenial and equally profitable. The article went on. While acting as Postmaster General at the Lilliputian village in Vienna, he invented a stamp cancelling contrivance which was purchased by the Austrian government. This wasn't showman's ballyhoo at all. Hans Pfeiffer really was an inventor. For instance, he'd come up with an underwater submarine ride for amusement parks and patented it in the US in 1904, with the document and diagrams freely downloadable from Google Patents. Yet Hans, like Hayati, had to live the show life because the world prized little people first and foremost as novelty humans. In their first few days in Adelaide, the tiny townsfolk were filmed for the Pathé newsreel. The cameraman took scenes of those lovebirds, Miss Alonka and her Arthur. He also filmed Hayati play wrestling with his full-sized valet. This sequence culminated with them being arrested by Tiny Town's policeman, an Australian little person named David John Armstrong, who joined the troupe and who'd inevitably become known as the Australian Tom Thumb. These moving pictures would soon be seen in Australia's earliest cinemas and on screens around the world. Tiny Town ran for two weeks in Adelaide. 60,000 tickets were sold. At an average price of about two shillings, this was £6,000. Adjusted for inflation, and it's around $900,000 today. Factoring in refreshments and merchandise, total revenue may have been around two or even three million dollars, and that was from one Australian city. They'd only just gotten started, and there was much more plunder to be had down under. 
Frederick Hooper Jones was living and working in Adelaide at the time that Beaumont Smith was first making bank out of Tiny Town. Fred, though, was making a more modest living as a travelling picture showman. As a fellow who'd long been in the entertainment game, Tiny Town's stunning success might have made Fred just a little bit jealous. After all, it had been just last year that he'd been the showman who'd electrified Adelaide. Fred had made a splash and plenty of cash by importing Australia's first monoplane, and he'd put it on display in the city. He'd had even loftier dreams for the machine, but they'd crashed and then they'd burned, with an assist from none other than Harry Bloody Houdini. If not for that, Frederick Hooper-Jones might now be a household name around Australia. Certainly, if the stars had aligned for Fred, he wouldn't be plying penny-ante pictures for Hicks in the Sticks in 1911. Now, motion pictures weren't a mugs game. You could make money. But nowhere near the amount you'd make if you were touring the Turkish Tom Thumb. In that very first edition of the Tiny Town Times, the little fellow had given his impressions of Australia too. The mayor of Tiny Town had reckoned, quote, The women of Australia I have found very kind and considerate. The men, for the most part, I do not pretend to understand. They have seemingly rough manners, but in reality they are what is called here good fellows. But not all of them were good fellows, as Hayati Hasid would find out when his path eventually crossed with that of Frederick Hooper-Jones. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Mayor of Tiny Town versus Australia's Shiftiest Showman. Parts two, three, and four will go on general release in the next week and a half, but you can hear them now ad-free if you're an Apple subscriber or Patreon supporter. To get early ad-free access to every episode, and to get exclusive bonus episodes, check out the links in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening and for supporting. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.